Okay, start again. Start again. Start again. Start again. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Crew Shaken, a Warhammer 40,000 tabletop wargaming podcast recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in the United States of America. I am Tim and joining me once again via the wonders of Skype are Carlo and Lavelle. Welcome, gentlemen. Hey, it's good to be here. Great to be back. So it's taken us a couple of weeks to get back together again for this recording of episode 12, partially because I've been sick and... uh had this really intense flu for the last couple of weeks, so my speaking voice was not necessarily in working order. But we are going to try to get together more frequently, a total of 12 episodes this year, if possible. That would be great. Um, maybe bring you shorter episodes more often. We'll see how that flows. As I'm editing this episode, I notice that there was a software glitch in the recording, and we missed some of this opening section and the first couple of lines of Carlo's hobby progress. Let's jump right in. Here's our conversation on Carlo's new Inquisitor Eisenhorn model. Hope you enjoy. The target suffers a mortal wound in addition to the normal damage, or D3 if the uh, if the wound roll was a 6. Um, he's got a quarry and authority of the Inquisition, which are in the Imperium 2 code, or Index. He can share his leadership with friendly Imperium units within six inches. Uh, so he's a good thing to run in any Imperium army. I guess you could take him as, you know, in like a separate detachment, patrol detachment or whatever. Yeah, and he can commandeer, um, he can commandeer vehicles too with that uh, Inquisitor yeah, rule. You know, <laughs> I, I use them, I use them in the game, uh, that ability in the game that I play. Authority of the Inquisition means he can get into any Imperial vehicle. That's pretty nice. Uh, he's got a six up, feel no pain. He can summon. So here's the here's the mal, what the Malice Codicium does. Uh, once per battle, at the start of any turn, Inquisitor Eisenhorn can use the Malice Codicium. If he does so, he loses his unquestionable Wisdom ability, which is the thing that allows him to share his leadership. Uh, but you can immediately set up a Daemon Host model anywhere on the battlefield that is within six inches of him and more than one inch away from enemy models. Uh, so I guess you know it's like in the books he has Trubiel following him around all the time, right? Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, this demon host has a character keyword, and its strengths, toughness, wounds, and attacks are all increased by two. While it's within six inches of him, add one to hit rolls, wound rolls, and invulnerable saving throws made for it. And you remove uh, you move it from play if Eisenhorn is slain. And you have to pay reinforcements for it. It's like demon summoning, pretty okay. much. Uh, he can uh, attempt to manifest two psychic powers and attempt to deny two. That's pretty powerful because I think he's 100 points flat. That's pretty good. Yeah. Um, he knows smite and two psychic powers from the telethesia discipline. Discipline. Yep. Mm. That's it. That's pretty good for 100 points. I don't think he has an invul save, though. It does not appear that he has one. So you're going to have to hide him. Um, he, has, he has a six plus feel no pain. I like him. It would be cool to do some kind of weird kit-bashed uh, demon host, you know, just to kind of serve as a marker for where he is, you know. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Maybe one Thank of you. those, uh, there's those uh, but Imperial the, Guard. But the demon, ho- the demon, ho- demon host is actually a model. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is a model. model. For it. Oh, cool. Okay. I thought that was for... Um, yeah, I mean, and it has, it has its own stat line. <clears throat> I thought that was for the uh, Inquisition game that, when they were bigger. Um, 
that like RPG, uh, the Inquisition it's RPG. A, it's a mo- it's yeah, it has stats in Imperium too. So there is they don't make it anymore people. though. You can't really get it on the GW website, can you? Um, I'll look right now. Let's I don't see. know, but you can always use anything. Yeah, I, I want to say that I have, I might have one in my basement. And please don't ask me questions as to why I would have a game <laughs> in my basement. I don't. I, I feel that that's a personal question, and I don't have to answer that. Is it whispering is, all your what Imperium is this models? Position? <laughs> like Lavelle goes down to his uh, gaming table one night, and Damon Host is like propped up, talking to all the other models. <laughs> what are you doing up here? What's the deal with that? I thought I had you in a case in the closet. Carlo, any additional? Hobby purchases or any games played to discuss? I know you played in a tournament a couple weeks ago. How was that? Joe ran a narrative tournament at Red Caps again, and we uh, fought for Caldor 4 this time. I guess Caldor 3 was blown up last year. Oh. So. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> it is the most fought after world in our narrative host. <laughs> um, but uh, it, was, it was great. We played a... Order versus Discord again. That's the common theme in our in our narrative loop. And uh, uh, half the I think we had sixteen players, which was used all of the space at Red Caps. That's great, which is fantastic. We had a bunch of people that we don't normally get. We had some people from Top Deck over in New Jersey, which was awesome. Um, I can't remember. I, we had a few folks from around the area, and it was it, we had a great turnout. Everybody had a really positive attitude. Cool. Um, there were some great lists running around. Played three games that day. And every time you set up to play, you would he'd split the two groups, right? And you get a second to talk about your strategy. And then uh, one, the team that goes first would put up a player and a mission, and the other team got to respond with the player, right? And then choose the board. So it was really cool, and you'd uh, sw- you know take turns going back and forth. Um, and then depending on if you won that game, you'd get like a, a clue based on because we were looking for order was looking for uh, a magus. That was like kind of running this the search for this weapon on this world, mm. and then the Discord was look, looking for the weapon. And I think it was called the Scythe of Light or something nice. like that. If your side won more games that round, you get a clue on where which continent because there were three continents. We had to kind of search, so we'd pick a continent when we played a game, and uh, we had to see if we could get a clue to find this item or this guy. So. It actually came down really close. At the end of the day, it was 118 to 114, I think, was the final Ooh, score. Oh, that's a great day. Uh, wow. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so those... let, me, let me jump in here. When, when you play those tournaments, one of the things about it, it's not so much your own individual wins loss because you're contributing and you're part of a team. And you get a little bit more control over who you play. And it, it just has a different impact. Because the scores add up, right? Well, what yeah. happens is when the when when the other players say, "Okay, well, we're putting forth Carl, and Carl is going to play at this mission," and you know Carl is the orc player, and you know your army doesn't go well against the orc players, people on your team can huddle up and say, "Okay, don't you go against Carl? You go against so and so." Sure. And so you have a little bit more control. Yeah, and this was the tournament was fifteen hundred points every game, correct? Right. I think oh, it's a, yeah, that was, it, it was, was a good. fun point value. Yeah, you, we that, actually a great finished point level. our games. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's a really good point level. I think 1850 and 2000 is it's just a little unwieldy for three games in a day. Yeah, you, I like that's a great point because I didn't feel exhausted or burnt out at the end of that day. I had a really 
really great time and you know unfortunately that doesn't happen at every tournament some tournaments you do get burned out um yeah, you're right. Fifteen hundred, solid. Lavelle, let's dive into uh, what what you've been doing. Uh, the first thing, and you have you have a long list of activity for the last six weeks. The custodies, what's the status with that army? First, I have been I've been in um, amazingly. I think I've been and since I think I was in a tournament in late January and in February I've been in two tournaments. So I've been in three tournaments. One with the custod, uh, all of them with the custodies. And so the first tournament I was pure custodies. And then the second tournament, I did a custodies. I did a test game. Then I did a custodies Imperial Guard mix because one of the things about the custodies is you run out of command points really fast. Why is that? Well, there's a lot of things that you can do with command points early, and they they really do matter. You want to double up early on your um your relics, and there's a a a, a title called Victors of the Blood Game that you definitely want to give to one of your shield captains. And so those, although right off the bat, you're coming out, if you start with six, you're going to come out with down three. And then you, you also have the option of being able to, um, put somebody, uh, another group into the tell, I like saying this, the God strike teleportarium. Whoa, great word. <laughs> right. And great so because word. of that, what you want to do is you, you want to, um, those are going to suck up your command points. So you want to add, a, um, I, this is a strategy that I found. You want to add another, guard unit and then you want to suck up another command point to give them the cure of sequilla so you have the option to gain one back right once i got that unit that worked out better and then what i found out is what you wait, wait. Is, is that the is that the uh relic that like anytime anybody spends a command point you can roll a d6 or something like that guard have access to two one relic says anytime i use one I can roll a D6 and I might get it back. Another one says anytime you use the stratagem, I can roll a D6 and I might get one. That's the one that I get. And so what happens is I also said I need a I had to experiment with this. You're going to try to shoot my guard and you're going to try to make me foul morale. So I had to figure out a way, to, you know, because guard have crappy morale. So that's when I came up against to go, to using the Krieg because if the Krieg uh, the Krieg do not take morale tests from shooting attack. Any unit lost, they don't care. Awesome. It's called the Cult of Sacrifice. That's how I, through experimentation with games, I've been playing a lot of games. Through experimentation games, I realized they're the best unit. And they have a unit, a troop choice called the Grenadier Squad. They have a save that's a little bit better than normal. And I couple them with a Vilexum. The guy with the staff, with the defensor, and that gives them a five plus invulnerable. Wow! Right, and so I've been I've been tinkering with all of that. I've got just the right warlord trait, and the warlord trait with the right relic. So the warlord trait that works really really well for me is the warlord trait. First of all, there's a relic that gives him a three plus invulnerable. All of them get a four plus invulnerable, but it gives them a three foot plus invulnerable. I teach the guy on the jet bike. He gets a three plus invulnerable, plus he gets to reroll his charge. And there's another relic. Um, I can't remember what it is. It's, it's, it's escaping right now. But I've got it all worked out. I know just the right guy to get, not just the combination. And I've been kicking butt and taking aims. Can you talk about your list in the fifteen hundred point game? Then do you have the uh, the jet bikes and the HQ on the custody side, or are you using somebody from the uh, Kriegs side? Let me think about this. At the fifteen hundred point level, taking a battalion of guard and a patrol. I'm thinking a patrol of the custodies. Gotcha. And that gives me six command points. And then I'm spending those command points and then getting them back. 
and it's been keeping me in the command point range. And one of the things I know is always keep one command point because with the custodians, you got to get out there and get in their face. And you got to put your warlord in jeopardy because your warlord, he, he kicks butt and he takes name. But if he happens to kill your warlord, what you want to do is you want to be able to have that one command point left to shoulder the mantle and make the other captain your warlord. So, so um, I, I, what warlord trait did you take? I can't remember it right now. You know, you think I have this guy, this memorized because I've ran this list so many times, and it works really, really well. I've been trying to experiment with it because I'm trying to figure out, am I going to do this when it comes to what we take to our trios tournament? Okay, I take Radiant Mantle. Oh, that's the Warlord trait? That's the Warlord trait. Because I was messing around. Radiant Mantle says um, your opponent has to subtract one from all his hit rolls targeting the Warlord. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. That's even better than that. Six up. Feel no pain. Yeah, in addition to that, he has a 3-plus inbound save, and he can re-roll fell. He's hitting on twos, and he's re-rolling ones. And that's on the uh, Captain General model, correct? No, that's not him. Nope. Because that guy, you can't change his warlord trait. Oh. That's, that's, the, shield cap, yep, gotcha. that's the shield captain on the Dawn Eagle bike. The other thing that I'm experimenting with, and some guys have come to the table, and they, they disagree with this. What I do is I take... One guy, I take three-man units of the custodian guards. Two of those guys have storm shields and blades, and one of those guys have the spear, even though the spear is the better weapon. The reason behind that is those storm shields, they make a lot of players angry on the other side of the table hmm. because those storm shields have a three-plus invulnerable save, and they can take three wounds. They tank a lot of shots. Interesting. They're like, they're like the Thunderwolf cavalry of old. And then I got three guys on bikes. Which unit has the storm shield again? The, the walking guys. There are three guys on the bike. So they're zooming around causing all kinds of havocs. There's one captain on a bike. And then there are three walking guys just walking around causing havocs. And I have the ability to give them that ability to deep strike them. And there's one other guy with the the big banner, and he's standing back protecting the grenadiers. Gotcha. That's the Vexillus Praetor. Yeah. he's this guy. These guys are doing nothing but holding objectives in my backfield, preventing you from deep striking in my backfield, you know, just generating uh, points. In addition to that, I have a Vanguard detachment, so I was wrong. So I have seven command points. I have a Vanguard detachment, and in that Vanguard detachment, I have three psychers and an Ogren bodyguard. Now, those three psychers have as a primary psychers, and my favorite psyker of all who I've learned is the astropath. Nice. Oh, yeah. You've had good luck with the astropath. Those two astropaths, what they know is psychic maelstrom. They're really there to help deny, but with psychic maelstrom, this is, I just cannot believe how incredibly powerful the power is. What you do is you roll two. Once it goes off, you roll a D6. If you roll a two, you do a you do a mortal wound. If that mortal wound goes through, then you roll again. If you roll a three, you do another mortal wound. If that goes through, you roll again. If you roll a four, this keeps on going <laughs> wow. until you no longer make that roll. In one turn, I felt guilty. I did four mortal wounds. <laughs> the dice gods favored you that game. That's awesome. That, they absolutely did. And so I had these guys positioned to try to do a little, you know, saving. And the Ogren bodyguard, he's just good for keeping things alive. 
I'll talk a little bit about the Ogren bodyguard a little bit later on. But those models right there, that's in my 1,500-point list right now, and that's been doing good. Right now, I have a level 2 list and a level 3 list. When I get in the level 3 list, I have a battalion. Um, the level 3 list is a 2,000-point list, and I played that, and I have a battalion of um, – custodies and a battalion of Krieg is just terrible. It's just horrible. But you know what it is? I've been I've been playing with it a lot and I've learned to generate a lot of synergy because what it does is it takes the battalion of Krieg that I already had working well. It just adds a battalion of, of custodies. And I'm just I've just been working those two lists and playing and playing and playing and having really, really good results. Let me tell you what's been happening. I get to the table. I lay it out. And people laugh at the number of models. <laughs> By turn three, the frustration on the other side of the table is really, really palatable. You ever played with the custodies? I'm sorry. You ever played with the um, the Mechanicus? Mm-hmm. You ever played with the Mechanicus robots that shoot out all of those shots? Oh, yeah. I was playing with a guy. He had four robots. And he, you, you know how those four robots, once they get their protocol off mm-hmm. and, and they're doing those shots. Mm-hmm. Is this the big walkie robot or the guys yes. on the tank treads? The big walkie robots, yeah. Big uh, walkie robots. And they were in that protocol where they couldn't move. But they could shoot twice. <laughs> they could shoot twice. In that protocol and they were shooting twice. And I deep struck in there because I had it in the guy strike teleportarian because every chance I get I'm going to say that. I deep struck in there <laughs> and I was in there and my shield the guys with the shields was in the front. And when that happened, I knew I had him. And he picked up all his dice, and I just knew what was going to happen. After he rolled, I think he rolled 45 shots twice, and he did two wounds. Wow. And I said, you know what? And I got two units, and there's no way. You're dead. So at that 1,500-board tournament, you said you lost your first game. What was the what was kind of the Achilles heel in that first game? Why, why didn't you go uh, 3-0? You know, in both of the tournaments and, and the tournament, I've been dropping the first game because it takes me a while to remember, oh, yeah, we don't do that. That's right. Oh, yeah, that's right. We don't get that close. Oh, we're supposed to measure that first. Right. Don't deep strike there. Remember that. This is supposed <laughs> to go there. A lot of times when I see Joe playing, Joe takes notes. And I always say I should do that. But um, I don't do that. And so <laughs> I, once I realize I'm dropping my first game, I, I got to start remembering that to kind of make sure that I get into focus. Yeah. Yeah. So it's more just about getting your mind right for the rest of the day after that first game. Black Library does have that nifty little new uh, Warhammer notebook that's available on blacklibrary.com. It looks like a moleskin notebook but it has the head of a primaris marine on the front it's pretty cool looking you could get one of those and start taking some notes after your games wait really yeah i've never pretty, seen that it's pretty slick if you go to the black library site they're selling that and they're selling a set of 24 postcards with uh, you know some significant pieces of warhammer related art on the front of the postcards let's talk about the necrons i know you've been you've been doing this private campaign space wolves versus necrons and that has been escalating into some pretty large games and your necron army has been it has been expanding and you're kind of retooling it a little bit too so what's up with the uh, what's up with the necrons in general let me just tell you something all of you i went out and bought me a bender shirt that says kill all humans to commemorate Mm -hmm. the finalization of my necron army 
my Necron army is just about complete, and you know it is it is a thing to behold. So, by complete, do you mean you're achieving a point level that you set out to start at years ago, or do you th- just have all the models that you could possibly want? So, first of all, how do you know when you're done? Really, how, how do you know when you're finished no, with with an listen, army? Is the question. There's really no new models in the army, but what I did is I've collected over time. I painted and put models away. Put them over here. Built models, didn't paint them, all painted in different schemes, decided to go in. What I did was all of the models have been painted in one uniform scheme. All of the models that, you know how, you guys know, your your models get broken and you put them in a little bin and say, I'm going to fix it. Yep. They've all been repaired. They've all gone back to the Cryptic Labs and been rejoined (laughs) together. Reanimated. I have. 14,844 glorious points, and it is fabulous. So they're all painted in a uniform scheme. It's just I had some forgeable arcanonithrites that um, I had built some and didn't build others, and I just decided to go ahead. And it's just let, let me just tell you something. The entire dining room table was covered, and it's just um, I'm so pleased I have um, – after I built them all and organized them and put them all in Army Builder, kind of looked at what I had, and it makes things so easy. So now when um, – in the private campaign that I had, I had put together um, – we had played 4,000 points, and we're getting ready to replay a scenario because it got a little wonky. But one of the things that I always was doing was building from the models that I could see. But now, you know, as the great nemesis that I am, I can build from the entire tomb that I have available. So the biggest the biggest game that you played in your uh, private campaign against the Space Wolves was four thousand points, right? That's where we are now. We've been it's a slow build. I think we're going to end up at ten thousand when we when we get there. But the thing about it is, I think in his mind, I think I'm going to uh, he might hear this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think in his mind, would he when we get to ten thousand, he is going to have ten thousand with three or four Lords of War. Oh. Okay. I think I can do 10,000 with two Lords of War, maybe even one. And that's just a different story when you have 10,000 models all churning through reanimation protocols. Right, right. That's a lot of models. Are they all based to match? Did I not say my army was complete? <laughs> and the, the, the follow-up question, are they all cased? Let me just say something. <laughs> the only thing I don't case yeah. is I – I'm going to ask for this to be a judgment-free zone. I don't case my HQs because they are above being cased. My HQs are in glass what cases. Do you, do you buckle them up in the front seat? Uh, they, no. they, they, they are in glass cases <laughs> in various parts of the house. So your, your Necron army is really done then. I can't poke any holes yes. in what you're saying. That's great. My Necron army is ready to take our rightful place now. We, I know we're supposed to talk about Forge Bane. Yeah, let's talk about Forge Bane now because I'm kind of excited about this too. Let's talk about Forge Bane. I just want to say that we broke it here on the podcast first, and it looks amazing. It's a box, you know, it's a box set. You get the Mechanicum, you get the Necrons, you get rules and a little book. I guess the book has like a campaign that you can play in it. I'm assuming that's what that little book is, right? So I intend to buy that box set, but this is I already know what I'm doing. There's a guy in our group called Justin. I'm give, I'm keeping the cryptech, I'm keeping the rates, and I'm giving all the other Necron pieces to him. 
I don't need any more Necron pieces. I'm excited about it because of those new. We got the new little Imperial Knight Armager War Glaives. I'm keeping the two War Glaives and I'm painting them just like my other Imperial Knight. And so anybody cool. else wants the other pieces can have them. So there's been a lot of price speculation about how much that box is going to cost. If you add up the price of everything, the, the current price of everything that is in the kit, yeah. minus the new Cryptek and mm-hmm. minus the two Armagers, whatever that total is, the box set will be less than that. So what, what, was, what was the total? Do you have any idea? Um, I, I think it came out to be less than $130. This one does not come with the full hardback rulebook, right? This just comes with the little leaflet? I think so, yes. Rule book, that's great. Cool. I heard somewhere that uh, people were – I think it was on the Facebook forums that people were speculating that the two sides' point values might not be equal depending on the rules of the, the, of the box game. People were trying to guess and how much those knights were worth. And based on what was on the Necron side, they were like, oh, the knights must be around 135 points each, which is less than a Dreadnought and still considered a Lord of War. <laughs> yeah, so, I don't yeah. see how that's possible. Yeah. Is it is it actually a boxed game, or is this just a starter set for 8th edition? I thought it was supposed to be a box game. We, we don't know how much that – because the guy has a – the Necron has a canoptic cloak, which is, a lot, is supposed to allow him – to repair canoptic units, which mm. is a really, really big deal. We don't know how much he, um, how much that costs. What do you think of the new Cryptek model? I like the Cryptek model. It, it, it. I mean, I guess he's going to get the fly ability. It looks like he's going to get the new, the fly ability. The Necrons, they know, have the ability somehow to hold back and control the warp. And the Mechanicum is now desperately trying to get that technology. And that's supposed to be the start of this new story arc or this new thing, you know, because we absolutely know that they desperately need it. Lavelle, you also had the opportunity to take part in another APOC game. How was that? So, you know what? So wait, first of that, all, for, first of all, you, this is your second APOC game of 2018. This is correct. It's only March, man. It's only March. This is crazy. This APOC game was a little bit different. Um, that APOC game, you know, it had multiple players. It was really, really organized, coordinated effort. So was this. But this organized, This was just me and one other player. It was me and Mike. It was an incredible, incredible effort. I got to make a couple of comments really, really quick about the game. First, you know, Mike and I, we both have large collections, and I'm not talking about my <laughs> my uh, Necron collection either. We decided we wanted to get all our models out, and we wanted to play, and Mike and I pay, played a one-on-one 12,000-point APOC game, and we played it over uh, the course of a, of a weekend, two days, and we played it. And let me just start by saying there are a couple of things that made it possible. First is Red Caps Corner. Red Caps, Red Caps, Red Caps. You know, Adam and Ben, the owners of Red Caps, I've known Adam and Ben since they first started it. And, you know, there are a lot of stores in the area. And there's a store called Gamers Heavens that's actually close to both of where we live. And we could go on there um, and we we wouldn't have had to get on the Schuylkill Expressway. And people who know from Philadelphia know what a big deal that is. We chose that place and we're glad we did. And it was just great. I think you need a Gellerfield to go on the Schuylkill, don't you? <laughs> we got down there when they opened up on Friday. We set up. Um, they opened up at 11 on Friday. We set up. We we immediately set up the terrain. We laid out our pieces. We set up the terrain. We were finished deployment. 
by about two thirty. So how many how, how many how many tables did you need? How much space? We took, uh, I think, you know, it was four feet deep, eight feet long. But is that right? Two four no twelve feet long. Yeah, you needed two sets of tables. Yeah. Yeah, and we were there, and we they closed at twelve midnight, and we were there when they were taking out the trash. Wow. They locked the doors and they opened up at eleven the next day, and we were there when they opened up. All our pieces were there. Was and this they, was this the largest game you'd ever played by yourself? Yes, this was. No, this was absolutely hands down the largest game. So now I got to talk about some other things. I got to talk about the community. This was all possible. Now in the community, a lot of people came by. They were giving us shout outs over of encouragement and calling us crazy too over Facebook. But you know what? There's a lot of great terrain. There's a lot of great tools all at Red Cat. I just want to say, you know, I'm 52 years old. I know I don't look that old, but I am. A serious gamer for 38 years. 38 of those 52 years. And over that time, I've lived most of that time right here in the Philadelphia area. Right now, okay, we have Red Caps, Seventh Dimension, Gamers Heaven, Stomping Ground, Amalgam Comics, not one, but two great showcase comics, alternate universe, uncanny, complete strategists, and more. We got groups like Page, Basement War Gamers, the Burks Gaming Club, many more. This is an incredible time to be a gamer right now. You, yeah, you can play at home. You can play with your friends. But right now, if you're not getting out, pushing little painted metal and plastic men and rolling dice with new and strange people, you have no idea what you're missing. I spent 19 hours. In the middle of a nor'easter with trees falling, horizontal <laughs> snow, and blinding conditions with a man that I don't think I even know a year ago. Right. It truly was an apocalypse. Best game ever. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Best game ever. Ladies and gentlemen, if you can hear my voice, you need to be getting out, going to strange new boards, seeking out new life and new <laughs> venues, and boldly going. Where your pieces where you have not gone before. It was the best game ever. So let me give you a couple of specifics. Yeah, what were some of the highlights? We ended, yeah. it, we ended it on turn four after 19 hours. Wow. Okay. <laughs> turn four. Okay. It was an imperial victory. The score, we did a Maelstrom game, I mean, with Maelstrom of War with the cards. We can, the, the score at that time was 10-4. We conceded that it was possible because it was chaos versus the Imperium. It was possible for chaos to score an additional three points, including Slay the Warlord, because he could have successfully cast Death Hex on my shield captain and gotten him. So we decided to set the score at 10-7. We was beat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there was a couple of critical lessons that we learned and it was important. We were both playing out of multiple codices, if that's the plural for codexes, okay? And we were playing with armies that we didn't regularly play. Like if I'd have just played all of my Necrons, it would have been no problems. But I played an Imperial soup. I was using Astra Militarium, Custodes, Imperial Index 2, and the Forge World. He was using Thousand Suns, Chaos Demons, Chaos Space Marines, Forge World, and Death Guard, okay? And so that made... <laughs> Yeah, you know, we're going back and forth through books. It's like you got a library. library. You got a library in front of each of you. <laughs> That's right. So, you know, that did slow the game out much longer, much more than we thought it was. 
here's the, the other thing. you know what even in a in a game that big you know what you you think you you, you would neutralize for luck but there was a little lucky rolling i'm not going to lie my dice were really really hot and his were not and there was a lot of things swaying in my direction that really really did skew the game and i just didn't think in a game that size that would happen here's an example it's a little bit of good tactics on my part but at this point, I'm like, come on, my Marauder Bomber, okay? You know my Marauder Bomber? So it is a huge freaking model, huge. And I knew it was not going to survive another game. So what did I do? I drove it into the center of the board where he had control. And then what did he do? Naturally, he shot it down. So what did it do? It blew up. It- <laughs> Crash and burn. <laughs> Crash and burn. Now, I did have to use a command point to re-roll it to make it blow up. Nice. I love doing that. (laughs) It did kill one of my shield captains. Okay? But check this next statement out. When it blew up, due to my rolling, it killed 42 of his models. (laughs) 42 of his models. That's a lot. What is how does that thing blow up? Is that like a <laughs> D-blast or something? No. no but listen, it's, it's so big, and you're measuring from the hull. I thought you measured from the base, don't you? Nope, you measure from the hull. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know if that's correct. I think I think any model with the base, you're supposed to measure from the base. Where'd you get that from? Certain. I will find it. We're gonna, all right. So this this is what happens next. Let's talk about my models of note. The Death Core Creek. Yeah. Again, nobody expects the Death Core. They care not for your shooting attacks. That's the only thing I can tell. And that takes everybody by surprise. Um, the Mar- the Marauder Bomber and the Lightning Fighters. I had two Lightning Fighters. They really do rule the sky. And so I, for most of the game, I had total air control because I had the Lightning Fighter two lightning fighters, the Marauder Bombers, and my um, Avenger. And so I was running the skies. There are two models, Master of Ordnance and Officer of the Fleet. I don't even know why I got those models. I picked them in there because I had, you know, I'm filling in points. I'm grabbing every model I got. But those two guys, when used properly, they're great support models. I didn't use either of them well. <laughs> right. It and didn't matter. after a while, I was like, hey, that's how you're supposed to use them. The Sisters of Silence. I finally understood how you're supposed to use those models and how they're supposed to be played. How so? I understood right after they died. Uh. <laughs> right. They're supposed uh. to be behind the people they're protecting, not in front. Not behind in front. the people they're protecting. Okay. Behind yeah. the people they're protecting with their psychic shielding. They look badass, but they're not really badass. <laughs> right. So if you're trying to protect people from um, psychic abilities, put the people protecting in front of them here's the other thing mortars really do rock (laughs) mortars were parked in some place just showering pain and the ogre bodyguard unless i did something wrong i put a bodyguard on pask he died pask didn't that was a pretty good use of 55 points so So i I got it i got it i got it it's in the rule book what does it say under it's under tools of war on the second page. What, what, page the, what page number? It's the first page of the core rules. On the left side, it says, 
Distances in Warhammer 40,000 are measured in inches between the closest points of the bases of the models you're measuring to and from. If a model does not have a base, such as the case with many vehicles, measure to and from the closest point of that model's hull instead. That makes a really big difference. I'll have to tell yeah. Mike. <laughs> it's still a great story. I like it when you blow up 43 guys. Oh, yeah. 42 guys. That's, that makes a really big deal. I think there's something else. There was something else that made me think that. I'm fairly, so fairly think, certain that's how it's supposed to be handled because I remember, like, in this edition with the flyers and their – since they have a base, they can block models too. Like, you can't move through a flyer because the base – you can use the base to, like, block areas even if it's not in hover. Cinematically, I think we can all agree it happened the way it was supposed to. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's definitely, cinematically. No, it's definitely – Mike, Mike, not Mike. Mike not, might, might not agree with that. No, no, Mike, I, think, I think Rule of Cool is totally in effect there, and I think you played it absolutely right, yeah. <laughs> Michael Bay style but, of playing. <laughs> it took us about an hour to set, uh, to, 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 just to break down. One of the things that we talked about was, you know, when you do an APOC game, even if it's just a one-on-one APOC game, you know, one of the key things is organization, planning. And it's not as difficult as you would think. I mean, assuming you got 19 hours to kill. Uh, but um, it was it was really really a lot of fun. Tell me how you felt throughout both days. Uh, what did you were you taking regular breaks? Because psychically, this is my you know this is the problem I have with playing an entire days worth of 40k. Right? It's psychically draining. Like it is spiritually. You know, there's you put a lot into trying to play well and keeping the game moving well and keeping it flowing and having a good time. How did you feel throughout both of those days of playing physically and like, you know, psychically? You know, my feet did hurt, but no, I was, we took no breaks. We just kept playing and we, I, you know, both of us felt like we were playing. Yeah. We didn't like at one point, you know, the snow is coming down and, you know, everything's going around. We would just, when I, when I left and I drove home, there were trees down around, you know, red caps. And I'm thinking, what the hell is this? You know, we were just really, really engaged in the game. How did you feel about how the Maelstrom cards applied to a game that was that big across that much space? In retrospect, I think we should have taken out some of the cards. Okay, because some of them weren't doable. Right. Well, yeah, it's not really for a battle this size. It's not necessarily like a couple of things. Like um, one one time I pulled, um, you know, the one that says, get everybody out of your deployment zone. Come on. So, you know, I think we should we could have pulled that down. But he had written a really, really good scenario. At turn five, these two towers were supposed to come down. He was storming the um the Imperial Palace and we were trying to defend it. And turn one, you know, turn one, you know, he uh he I, I think on turn two I had killed um Iron Man and um what's the uh and um and Mortarian. Because I knew those guys couldn't live, you know, whatever the case. Yeah, you had to take and them out. Yeah. I, I lost two nights in the process, but whatever. Holy crap. Yeah, whatever. So what did you do to prepare for such a game of that size? Like, did you print out that, like, your own Excel spreadsheet, data sheet for all your guys' weapon skills and stuff? Or did no, you just bring I, I books used- with you? You know, I um, you know, I'm, I'm I still got my same complaint about the, the you know the, the standard army builder that we have, which was a mess. I just wish you know, I just wish there was some way to to actually print out a decent one. And so a lot of times I'm looking at that and I'm going back and forth to books, 
you know, fortunately, there wasn't a lot of things going on at um, Red Cap. So we've got our books laid out and we're going back and forth. You need that like minority report thing where you can like okay. just like reach out in front of you. And just... that, that would be cool. Over the course of maybe three, four weeks, I'm laying models out on tables in my living room and I've got tape on the tables and I'm putting people into detachments in different areas of the tapes. Right. And so I, I had to do all of that. And then I've got a box and package all of, I was glad to put all of that away. Yeah, you need to like bring them over on a pallet to red caps or something, you know? <laughs> How many command points did you have at the start of the game? Surprisingly not no and nowhere near as many as he did. I think I maybe had seventeen. Wow. And he had twenty nine. <laughs> wow. I was like, How's this possible? <laughs> twenty nine yeah. command points. Did you spend them all? Did I spend them all? Yeah. Not only did I spend all of my command points, I had because I had the Aquila, I was getting his command points and spending them. I was desperate. By turn two, I was desperate for command points. Well. Because at one point in time, you know, I had to use my command point to make my night blow up. <laughs> did you succeed? Yeah. You know. Uh, right. I used that command point. Okay. He's automatically blowing up. <laughs> Get ready for your mortal wounds. So, you know, it, here's the thing. Here's the key thing right here. When I'm getting ready to say right here, it was fun. When I left there and, you know, I'm driving home, I'm driving home on, on Saturday night at 9 o'clock. And you know what? I was smiling. Cool. Um, thank you, Lavelle, for sharing that um, most excellent gaming story of a 12,000-point APOC game. We'll take a quick break and come right back. Don't forget to check us out at facebook.com slash crewshaken and for Instagram at crewshaken. Welcome back. Section 2, Episode 12, Tactical Upload. I want to ask a couple of questions in this month's Tactical Upload section. I was reading about Nick Nanavati's LVO winning Eldar list. And the list is just kind of a weird mishmash of Eldar stuff, right? It doesn't make a hell of a lot of narrative sense, but tactically it makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of good balances in there. My takeaways from the list, right? There's a couple of stratagems here. Webway strike, there's the Yunari, a couple of Yunari rules that lets you advance and charge. The Webray Strike Stratagem gives you double moves for some of the uh, some of the units in his model. So the Yunari in his list can double move, advance, and then charge. So there, so so it's very mobile. So the question I wanted to put out there to you guys, right, is has he found like the secret sauce? For, obviously, he has for success with the Eldar. Right, it's a, a super mobile army. He's got some heavy support from these uh, the Dark Reaper units, so they're just throwing down a ton of shots over the head of these really quick-moving forces coming right out in front of the enemy and taking objectives and getting into combats as quick as they can early in the game. Is that one of the secrets to success in 8th edition? Is, is mobility, like, the thing? How do you feel about that? So I think, I think mobility is key in a lot of situations, especially Maelstrom games, definitely. Like, anybody could tell you that. But I don't think that, like, having heavy support backing up mobility is at the key to every army, and I don't think so. I think in this situation it works really well because the 
so the weapon he's taking on Dark Reapers, which, you know, Dark Reapers are the most popular Eldar thing right now. You can't even, it's impossible to buy them online because they sell out instantly, right? And the reason why is because they, they hit on a three up and with the Tempest Launcher, which is the weapon he, he takes for him, it's a heavy 2d6 strength 4 AP minus 2 one damage weapon. So you get 2d6 shots per guy and I think he had like, what, 9 plus 8 guys, right? So 17 guys or something like that. They can sit in an area out of line of sight because they could shoot at the Tempest Launcher can hit uh, targets that are not visible to the bear. So they can sit out of line of sight and just fire pot shots across the table because it's a uh, 36-inch range. At the same time, the thing that complements that are the Shining Spears, which I think he deep-struck them in with a with the Webway Stratagem, right? Right. Yep. Was that it? Mm-hmm. Okay, and then when they charge, they get uh, Strength 6 attacks compared to Strength 3, which is what they normally get. They're like AP minus 4 or something crazy. Wow. So they're really dangerous on the charge, and they have a... F- Four up invul against shooting attacks. Yeah, against ranged weapons. They're just something that could like turn one, get in, get the charge in, get in your face, and like even if they get overwatched on, they're probably not going to take much from it because they have that invul, and they're gonna they're gonna like completely wreck whatever. I would imagine that they would go first thing to put pressure on anything that could shoot at those reapers. Right. You know? I don't think anything is an auto win. I, I think if you come to play a certain way and nobody expects it, then you know you're going to have an advantage. You know, when you have speed, speed has an advantage. But if you, if, you know, the only thing you're going to use your speed for is to get into close combat. Mm-hmm. And if you, I don't care who you are, you can get as fast as you want. If you get in a close combat with the wrong close combat army, you're not going to be able to do anything. I don't care how fast you are, you get in a close combat with the wolf and you're going to have a problem. Yeah, I've definitely done that with Reavers a few times. I'm like, man, these guys are fast and they're like close combat oriented and then you charge something that you can't damage and they're just wiped out. <laughs> really earlier in the game than normal. Like, <laughs> Help me understand. Maybe I'm, I'm, Help me understand. Bring me up to speed here. If I'm wrong, the Shining Spears are fast attack choices, right? Yeah, they're bike uh, jet bikes. Right. Shining Spears are jet bikes. They have a weapon um, called a Laser Lance. So it's Strength User, which is 3, AP minus 4, 2 damage. Right? All of them have that. And they all have Twin Shirk and Catapults, which are an Assault 4. Strength 4, 1 damage weapon that um, is rending minus 3 on a wound of a 6. So... All those shuriken weapons from Craft World do that. It's like anytime you hit, roll a six to wound a six up, it's a minus three. Say he's running like he's got uh, nine of them. Nine, yeah. nine of them, so that's yeah. 20, 28 shots of uh, potentially. You know, it's like twenty eight bolter shots that potentially could do minus three peppered in there. You know, yeah, yeah. And then the the, the laser lance, you know, is a devastating close combat weapon. It's going to take terminators out really well. Um, Anything like that with like a like a good armor save, but that doesn't have like a decent impulse save, it's just gonna wreck because it's two damage, and they get two attacks each with that, except for the Exarch. Um, he gets a Star Lance, and that's made at strength eight comparatively to the strength six of the Laser Lance. So that's something that's like a power fist right there that deals two damage, and he's got three attacks there on that on the squad leader, you know, the Shining Spear Exarch. They advance six inches automatically, 
And you can re-roll wound rolls for Shining Spear Exarch when attacking a monster or vehicle. Not always applicable. You know, how often do you really attack? You're probably not going to go against a vehicle or something like that very often. You might. I don't know. They have totally have great potential to damage a vehicle, but I would use them to, like, wipe out elites or something like that. So, And then the, the like we were talking about earlier, the Dark Reapers, um, I don't know if I mentioned it, but they always hit on a 3+. plus. They ignore modifiers. They ignore cover. Like, so, Kalexis Assassin, they're hitting you on a 3+. plus. I think he started them um, in uh, Wave Serpent, right? So they can't yep. get Deep Striked on, right. or Alpha Striked, whatever yep. you call it. Yep. The other thing, he's got the he's got a few Psychers in there, a good amount of Psychers, so um, got a bunch of Deny. Those Farseers are nasty. Like, I play them all the time. They can deny two powers, and they can reroll dice when manifesting a Psychic power once per phase. Or, or denying. So they can... So they could do it during your phase, and they could do it during their phase. And they cast two powers. So he has, what, one, at least two of those. And then your brain, your brain's a really powerful psyker. That's a, that's a scary list. <laughs> so yeah. I find, yeah. you know, when I'm playing with my space marines, right, my lack of mobility, I guess which is what kind of drew me to this question and to chat with you guys about it. My lack of mobility has become worrisome. I tend to move up like turn one and just kind of get planted somewhere and just start shooting with a lot of heavy support, which is real fluffy for the Iron Hands. You know, it's a fun – I enjoy it. It's fun. It's not a ton of models to manage. But now I'm thinking my new dream, right, would be to do like Tech Marine on a bike, you know, to be able to – I mean, that's a great idea. You can run around. I know you run a lot of vehicles, so he can get back and forth and repair them. (laughs) And I'm hoping at some point soon we get some uh, Admech vehicles – so I can help address that on the Admech army too. Oh yeah, because are there any transports for Admech? No, right? No, That's they crazy. do not. They have no vehicles yet. Right, no vehicles yet. They like to be far back, though, right? You want to yeah. basically plant them in the back and shoot. Yes, they are shooty, um, and the stuff that can infiltrate. There's a you know the uh, the Sicarian uh, infiltrators are good close combat guys, and if you can infiltrate them well, then they can do some good close combat damage. But it's it's just getting them there in the first place that becomes the challenge. Yeah. You know, I I think people come. You know, when people go to the LVO, people go thinking that they know the meta. And I think it looks to me like you know Nick here built a great list, and he built a list that had a, a ser- it was a good toolbox. And I think a lot of times people pick a trick, and they work with that trick, and he built the toolbox. And I think a lot of times people get stuck on this real, this is real, this is really good. And you see that repeated over and over again in a particular area. An example is right now across the board, you see a lot of people using the death guard and you see the same death guard thing going over and over and over again. That's why I like to go to uh, different, um, different tournaments and different events where you see a lot of different things and you get to go to different tables and you say, what what do you have? I'm trying this. I'm doing this. And you get to see a lot of different things. Those types of events are a lot more fun. Do you think, do you think there's something about eighth edition that encourages or at least enables that more of a toolbox approach to win as opposed to in seventh edition where it was more, you know, like a death star librarius conclave kind of a thing where you had one like super potent, piece of your army that was the thing that you were going to win with whereas in eighth edition do you think there's something about it that forces you to be a little bit more versatile in order to win at this kind of level so and i felt like in seventh 
you didn't really need to know what you were doing when you ran a Death Star most Death of the Star. time. Oh. Yeah, because I was new to the game and I was running a Death Star, and it was you know it was very uh, forgiving, right? Because uh, with the exception of like placement of models, like you kind of had to know where you you wanted to place your models because it was the first, the closest thing. You always took the wounds on, right? If I if I remember correctly, yeah, uh, you're right. But I feel like in in eighth, you kind of have to know how to use the model to benefit from it, and you have to be very careful about your positioning with the auras, you know. Because I found that I I tend to move guys out of my aura bubbles very easily and not not notice it. And then, like, for instance, like, I was using um, Logan Grimnar. I've been using that a lot lately, and he, you know, he gives that really awesome reroll to hit for any Space Wolf unit. And I was using him to, as, like, a deep striker when, you know, the, in that tournament we played, I just sat him in between my Razorbacks. I was running Twin Assault Cannon Razorbacks, two of them, and he just let them reroll all their shots. You know, and it sucks because he's an expensive model, but that's how you have to use him. Is to he's a chapter master, you use him for his rerolls. You and, know? He's, and he's worth it. Just he's worth it for that alone. He's worth the points for that ability alone. Yeah, especially all three games I went against horde armies, so I really needed Tyranids, Orcs, Tyranids. So yeah. So Lavelle, you think it's more a product of the meta than anything else? Yeah, but you know, I want I want to I want to back up to what Carlo just said. I think any game that allows a player to be rewarded and not know the game is not a good game. I, I, I definitely agree with what he just said. I, I think, though, I think one of the challenges is the environment. You know, the environment that you're playing in should reward good play, not just winning. And I think that's very, very important. It should reward diversity and it should it should reward like for example if everybody comes to the the tournament and everybody is playing space marines and there is one tyranid player it should recognize the tyranid player it should find some way to do that cuz that's important to the hobby and it's important to, important to the diversity of play as 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 carlo pointed out earlier that tournament that we had in that we just played you know it was it was a nice amount of diversity as a group, it does us no good if we're going to be competitive if in our group we never face a Tyranid player. And then we go out to a convention and or we go out to a tournament and it's our first interaction with a Tyranid player. Yeah, it's a great point. It's a great point. That's why I think your efforts to play at other stores, to play at as many stores as possible, to play as many different kinds of player you know, in terms of level of experience – and uh, army type and list type and everything, I think, is smart because it really does get you ready for uh, for anything. You know, it, it forces you to think about your army as that toolbox, and it gives you a situation in which you have to use all those tools to try to pull off a win. Yeah, so, it's hard to know, think tactically if you don't know what you're going up against. Right. Sure. And, you and know, it's no, like no matter it's what, if, if you're going to Red Caps and you're playing every Thursday and every other Sunday, you're still playing with the same group of guys. You're still playing, and it's the same. And the only time you're seeing the guys from the other parts of, this, uh, of the area around here is when you're coming to a tournament that's not enough. I want I want to go back to to one thing that kind of relates to that is like, does anybody ever feel like they're wasting time when you're getting set up for a game and you're explaining to each other what's in your list when you don't know, like like against armies that I have no idea, like Tyranids. I never played Tyranids. And, like, somebody's telling me, and we're doing it to be nice to each other. We're like, this guy's got a this, and this guy's got a that, and this is a squad of this. But it's like, like you don't, 
it's really all Greek. no yeah exactly it's all Greek I know that's like kind of like 40k etiquette at this point is that something like we want to keep around or can I tell you what I do I, yeah. I, I stop them yeah and you know what I just say can you show me as we go yeah can, that's a good can way you show to do me it. as we go sometimes you know if somebody's getting ready to charge me I'll say you you know this guy has a flamer I don't I don't like I don't like getting people with gotchas. And I yeah. tell people when I'm playing, even in the tournament, I'll tell them, listen, I don't mind backing up. You, you charge him. He okay, he's going to hit you with a flamer. He has a flamer. Okay, I'm sorry, you didn't know that. I don't mind backing up. Yeah, you know, I don't I don't like gotchas, and sure. you don't have to take a gotcha. I don't I don't have a problem. Yeah, he has a flamer. Okay, you get ready to charge him. This is the guy with the power fist. Is that you're going to right? I don't mind that at all. Yeah. He's going to get plus one. He's going to re-roll. He's going to – I don't mind that at all. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't get a gotcha. This is the guy with the three plus M bone. He's going to get re-roll. Char- oh, I don't mind that at all. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, tell me as we go. And, and the other thing is, you know, this isn't the NFL. We're not playing for money. Exactly. <laughs> <We're> not, <laughs> you know, we're not playing for money. It's okay. Okay. It's all right. Yeah, so I'm sure I, there's you a know, way to, like, address that, right? Like, if there could be some sort of – like an app or something, right? With like a picture of your model, right? You could like upload pictures of your model and then have like the data sheet on the right side and then the you could just hand your iPad to your opponent and you could just swipe through it the whole game. So let, let me got, let me just jump in here and tell you this. I went to a tournament run by Basement Wargamer and Basement Wargamers ran a tournament at Gamers Heaven and they used an app called BCP. And I had never seen it before. Oh, Best and Coast Parents, signed, yeah. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. and they signed in. And if the person uploads their list, not only does it automatically give you your pairing in your table, if they upload their list, you can see their list and you can see all their stats. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's a whole it's, – it's, it's an app for tournament organizers and tournament participants to – it lets organizers kind of handle um, – Checking people in at, to the tournament and getting everybody's lists registered, and then it lets them kind of manage behind the scenes stuff of like doing all the pairings and whatnot. And it lets the the gamers, you know, the, the participants in the tournament, kind of keep track of their standing and who they're who they're likely to go up against next and everything else. So it is it is pretty slick. Yeah, but it, it was it was really good. It was a really good app, and I, I think it also let in, in that particular case, it could also let you see other tournaments that were going on in other places. So I, you know, I think anything that that would allow you to share information that that would be really, really good. But I, you know, I, you know, if somebody's sitting there, okay, and he has a a jimmy jab and it does the jimmy jab and it's plus two to jimmy. Okay, I'll pump your brakes. I'm good. I'm good. I have no idea what you're talking about. Let's information just overload. All right. Cool. I hope you all got something out of our tactical upload section. Uh, we'll take a break and we'll be back. Episode 12, new season, new section. This section is called Welcome Scouts. Rules, tactics, and tricks related to 40K that would be really beneficial for somebody who is just starting out in this weird, wild, and wonderful hobby we all enjoy so much. We have a couple of notes here to talk about. Each of us has kind of picked out something to uh, to speak to with regards to uh, the new player. 
Um, Lavelle, why don't you kick us off by talking about Heroic Intervention? This popped up recently in a couple of games that you were playing. Let me start this off by reading the Heroic Intervention rule. I have it here. It's in the uh, new Warhammer rulebook, page 182 at the bottom of the page in the charge phase section. The rule is Heroic Intervention. After the enemy has completed all of their charge moves, any of your characters that are within three inches of an enemy unit may perform a heroic intervention. Any that do so can move up to three inches as long as they end their move closer to the nearest enemy model. So one that came up in a couple of my games is when that occurs during the charge phase. So a couple of things. It absolutely occurs during the charge phase and not during the fight phase. So there was a little confusion about one of my games, and I had to clear that up. That occurs during the charge phase, but it occurs at the end of the charge phase. So some people, and I had made this mistake once, so the opponent makes a charge, and as soon as they end their movement within three inches of the um, the character, the character then attempts to do a heroic intervention. But that's not correct. The opponent, whoever is doing the charging, completes all of their charge moves, and then... Any characters on the other side get that are eligible for heroic interventions can then make heroic interventions. Why does that matter? It's possible for the charging player to block off heroic interventions. You could actually charge that character and prevent him from heroically intervening another charge. So does that mean that they can... Make a heroic intervention against something that didn't even charge? Yes. So this says of an enemy unit? Yes. Okay. That's pretty cool. That's a little bit weird. but They don't have to end their move in combat? They have to end their move closer to the nearest enemy model. Yeah, I guess... It doesn't have to end within that inch. That's bizarre. I feel like that should be fact. Yeah. Let me look it up. I don't think that was fact, though. It was. It wasn't. I already looked. Oh, you did. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That that's interesting. Um. So that means that he can always be moving three inches closer. Any of your characters that are within three inches of an enemy unit may perform a heroic intervention. So he can move up to three inches. Yep. Okay. So he has to be within three, but he could only move one if he wanted to. But what's weird is, and I think this is what Lavelle was getting at, is. Any of your characters that are within three inches of an enemy unit. So that means that's not the charging unit, right? That's not the... It could be anywhere on the table. Right. You could draw another unit into combat on the other side of the table and attack them because... And they can't attack you because they didn't charge you. Does that sound right? I don't know. Listen to this. I'm, right. This is on... Listen. Heroic intervention. The spirit of the rule is to have the characters be able to fight with their nearby brethren when they get charged. However, arguing with the spirit of the rule really doesn't fly with certain type of people. The way the heroic intervention rule is written, it merely states the character has a three-inch move. How do the mechanics of heroic intervention work exactly? This is the response. The specific mechanics of heroic intervention are actually pretty nuanced, but the results is exactly as you expect once you lay out all the pieces. This isn't really answered in the FAQ, but that's because it was answered in the base rules. First piece of confusion that I had to clear up, declaring a fight phase target. You can only target the unit that charged the turn. I'm not even sure if this is even answering the question. 
you can kind of divine the intention of the rule. It's to basically to give the the character kind of an, like an, like a pile in before the fight phase starts. You know, it's giving a character a chance to fight. You know, just like you said, Lavelle, it's giving a character a chance to fight with his brethren. I've only ever used heroic intervention when I have a character nearby a friendly unit that has been charged. Wait, what, read it. Read it to me again. Read the rule again. Here's the rule. After the enemy has completed all of their charge moves, any of your characters that are within three inches of an enemy unit may perform a heroic intervention. He is. He has to be within three inches of enemy unit. Of an enemy unit, not the charging enemy unit, but an enemy unit may perform a heroic intervention. Any that do so can move up to three inches, so long as they end their move closer to the nearest enemy model. Okay. So he fights them. Yes. Yes. Where so, did you get that from? So, and choose targets, right? First, you must pick the target. So, basically, for to target an enemy unit, the attacking model must either be within one inch of that unit or within one inch of another model from its own unit that is itself within one inch of that enemy unit. This represents a unit fighting in two ranks. Models that charge this turn can only target enemy units that they charged in the previous phase. So, the only thing that has a restriction as to what it can fight is the charging unit. So if you if you heroically intervene uh, a unit that that didn't charge that turn, they can hit you back. Or if you intervene a unit that had charged, like another one of your own units, it can only attack the target of its charge. Okay, I, th- let me read this whole thing to you. The specific mechanics of heroic intervention are actually pretty nuanced, but the results is exactly as you expect once you lay out the pieces. This isn't really answered in an FAQ, but that's because it was answered in the base rules. First piece of confusion that I had to clear up, declaring a fight phase target. You can only target the unit you charge the the turn if you charge that turn. It's a restriction and not an enabler. Second piece of confusion, the stay out of one inch of units rule only applies during the movement phase and when taking a charging action. Out-of-movement phase non-charging actions like heroic intervention do not have to obey this rule. Naturally, soul bursts and acts of faith have the magical prevention phase like it's the movement phase to enforce obeying the one-inch rule. This is why you can pile in and consolidate into combat. Since the character did not charge, they do not have the charging restriction and can therefore fight freely. Enemy charging units cannot attack the character character because they didn't charge the character. However, here's a curiosity. Designer's commentary, page two, states that heroic intervention can activate by merely wandering too close to an enemy character. In this instance, neither units have the charging restriction, and both can thwack each other to their heart's content. Right. So if the unit that charged can only attack what it charged. The character can can hit it, but can't be hit by it if it intervened and wasn't a target of the charge. So, but if you do this, right, so say if you're in the charge phase and you target, you declare that character's within 12, mm-hmm. it's a legal targetable unit for a charge, mm-hmm. and another unit's within 12, and you only go to that other unit, right, and you don't uh, charge into the character, and the character intervenes, then you can swing against the character because you declared it as a charge target. But you didn't charge the character, you just said you charged the other unit. Right. You, decla- right. you 
Right, you, you declared, declared it. That's correct. So that's that's like where it gets confusing. If you heroically intervene into something that's not that didn't charge at all this turn, then the the character and whatever you intervene into, they get to fight each other. So that that also gets a little bit funky with piling in, right? Because I think the way that we normally play it at Red Caps is that so you fight something, you kill it, and then you pile into the next thing. You don't get to swing on it, but it gets to swing on you. That's right? correct. But to me, that doesn't make I, – I agree with it because I think it, in fairness, I agree with it. But the fight phase has already ended, and you've gone into the consolidation No, 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 section, no, no. Right? No, no, no. Their consolidation. The consolidation happens after your unit fights. It's part of your unit's fight phase. Oh, okay. So that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. And so now my fight, my unit's fight phase, assuming it hasn't already fought, it still gets to fight. Okay, During the cool. fight phase, you activate a unit, and that unit piles in, fights, consolidates. That entire six-part fight sequence of the fight phase happens – it's a cycle, right, that happens every time. This has right. happened before it's, and will happen again. again. <laughs> it happens in each unit's fight phase. Yes, right. Not each player. Right. Because each unit will have its own individual fight phase, and so you can be confused – when his unit has its fight phase and does the thing, you're like, oh, well, how, am I, how am I in this situation? I had a note here, just a piece of gaming etiquette. How do you guys feel about this? I think I know, but I'll, I'll throw it out here anyway. Say you're deploying, right? I have six units. You have ten. So you have four units left to deploy, and I don't have anything to respond to those units on the table, right? You're just going to set up four units in a row before we start playing. If you put a unit down... Are you oh, if your opponent say your opponent is, is is finishing his the rest of his four units right? Are you okay with them putting something down and then moving it after they have after they've let that model go? I have a question for clarification. Now they've laid down unit A, B, C, and D. I've made down my A, B, C, and D. Okay, I'm done. They lay down unit E. They lay down unit F. Then they want to move unit E. E, not A, B, C, or D. Nope. E. Okay. Right. I'm, I'm indifferent. How do you feel, Carlo? Uh, I'm indifferent, too, because usually about that time I go and get a soda. So <laughs> anything could really happen, and I wouldn't notice a difference. <laughs> how do you feel, Tim? See, I don't know how I feel about this, because because you you asked the exact right question, Lavelle, in that if they wanted to move one of those first four units they had put up, I would have a problem with that, right? Because we were responding to one another's deployment with our own deployment, yeah? But does that dance of I'm putting this here because you put that there, which is a part of the deployment, right? Whether or not it's the entire strategy is, you know, it's not. But does that same sensibility end when I put my last down model on my, my, my last unit down and my opponent has more to go? I don't know. I'm really on the fence about this one. Yeah, I think I think so because, like, obviously, if you look at the trade-off between the two of you, like Lavelle said, it's a response, right? Yep. So, if they change, like, it could be changed to be a different outcome, right? If they do that, whereas you're done putting your stuff down, those last three units that they have to put down, E, you know, F and G, mm-hmm. or whatever, they could. Put those, move them around, do whatever they want, and it's not going to change their response to how you put your stuff down. Whereas if they changed A through D, 
that would change their response to how you deployed. So you don't have a problem. So that, you don't have a problem with that, right? The next thing I have here is cover saves in Eighth Edition. I think cover is a lot easier to manage than it was in Seventh, but it's still there's still some nuances, right? And some of it has been fact, right? So in general, if a unit is entirely on or within any terrain feature, add one to its saving throws against shooting attacks to represent the cover received from the terrain. So it's not the majority of the unit. It's the if it's a unit and is entirely on or within. These cover rules are crystal clear. I think the problem is people who are experienced players are still reverting back to 7th edition rules. I've gotten to some arguments with eighth, with with current players, experienced players, and I just say, no, that's not how it works anymore. Let's go to the book. Mm-hmm. It's just as simple. Let's go to the book. Sure. And let me tell you the other thing because I, I, I was re- prepared for this. The other thing that happens, they got 12 models in the unit, and I'm shooting them with, you know, 20 gall shots, and it's time for their saving throws. And they start rolling their saving throws. They roll one, and they fail. And they take a model off. They roll another one. They take a model off. They roll another one. They take a model off. Now the rest of their guys are in cover, mm-hmm. are in the terrain. And now they want to say, now we're in cover. No, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> right. You're not eliminating right. one to cover, right? Right. That's right. <laughs> right. No. When I shot you, this rain of destruction all came at the same time. Right. You can roll one as many as you want, but they, the conditions when I rolled my shots all apply. Right, right. <laughs> my thinking is right. Am I correct? Yeah. Okay, now we're in cover. Now the rest of them get covered. No, I don't even know what edition that rule applied to. <laughs> mm-hmm. Carlo, you have a good one here. Modifiers after rerolls. Going into 8th edition was kind of difficult for me because I use a lot of Thunder Hammers. So this is something that I really... And I have a, a, like a few characters that allow me to reroll all hits, not just hits of one. So, like, the Wolf Priest all hits in the fight phase, and then Logan all hits. So, um, when you roll a Thunder Hammer, it's a minus one modifier, right? And the rule, um, according to the rule in the fact, anytime you're re-rolling dice, you roll your first uh, sequence or whatever, and you re-roll that, uh, depending on what missed, based off of your normal BS, and then you apply modifiers. So, if I normally hit on a three... That does not count as a miss for the purpose of rerolls due to my minus one, right? Because it would go to uh, a four, right? Uh, or it'd go to a two. So, like, if I have if I'm hitting with thunder hammers, yeah, right? Yeah, they hit they hit on fours, sure, right? Because my my BS is three. I have to roll four to hit with it. Um, if I have something that allows me to do rerolls, I go okay. So, in that scenario, I can only reroll ones and twos. Because a three would normally count as a hit according to my unit's profile, and the modifiers are applied after rerolls. So I can only reroll ones and twos. The threes count as hits until the modifier. So, and I think what uh, some people I've played against struggle with, and it, it's actually like not becoming an issue anymore, and it was an issue for me at the beginning too, but like they'll reroll ones, twos, and threes in that scenario. Because the threes aren't hits for them, but. According to the rules, they are until the modifier is applied. So 
um, that's something like as a beginner I would find pretty confusing. For instance, like I was using uh, twin assault cannon Razorbacks and they're heavy, so when you move the Razorback, it only hits on a four, so I could only reroll my ones and twos in that situation too. I think that was a good welcome scouts section. We talked about heroic intervention. We talked about whether or not it's okay for your opponent or yourself to move units when your opponent is done setting up their stuff. We talked about cover saves, and we talked about modifiers coming after rerolls. Okay, we're going to wind down and wrap up episode 12 with The Chosen, our pick of the episode. I picked up this book at my secret Black Library used bookstore uh, down in the New Jersey Shore. Um, it's called Atlas Infernal by Hey, Rob. wait a minute. Did you just re- release a secret location? I, got, I, I, I just got – I just got – put that in. Cogitators are locking it yeah. in. <laughs> I, have, I have not given them proper named props yet. That's because I still haven't bought all of their Black Library books, but I'm going to. <laughs> so I picked up this book called Atlas Infernal. It's by Rob Sanders. This is an Inquisitor novel. This one features Inquisitor Sivak. C-Z-E-V-A-K. I will read you the, uh, the description here. This is from the Black Library site. It kind of sums up the vibe of the book without giving any spoilers. Inquisitor Bronislaus Sivak is a hunted man. Escaping from the Black Library of the Eldar, Sivak seals the Atlas Inferno, a living map of the webway. With this fabled artifact and his supreme intellect, Sivak foils the predations of the Harlequin sent to apprehend him and thwarts his enemies within the Inquisition who want to kill him. His deadliest foe, however, is Araman, arch-sorcerer of the Thousand Suns. He desires the knowledge within the Black Library, knowledge that can exalt him to godhood, and is willing to destroy the Inquisitor to obtain it, of course. A desperate chase that will bend the fabric of reality ensues, where Sivak's only hope of survival is to outwit the Chosen of Zinch, Lord of Chaos and Architect of Fate. Failure is unconscionable the very cost to the Imperium unimaginable. So this is a really great Inquisitor story because his warband is full of really cool characters that you really do develop a fondness for over the course of the novel. He comes across as kind of a... You don't really like him in a lot of situations in this book. He does put his warband through hell. But seeing him interact with Harlequins and his interactions with Armin, who I think is a really interesting character in all of this, is really cool. And uh, it does uh, it is a mind-bending uh, chase through the fabric of reality. So I picked this one up on a lark. I had never heard anybody talk about this book before. And as far as I know, this is the this is the only Inquisitor Sivak novel. And I imagine this could spawn out into a series. This is a couple of years old, so maybe it just didn't do well, and nobody wants to hear anything about this guy anymore. But for kind of a kind of a weird, relatively untalked about uh, Black Library novel. I really did like it. It is still available from Black Library as an ebook. It's not uh, available as a paperback anymore, but I picked up the paperback used. Um, highly recommended. It is a it is an entertaining read if you do like that relationship between Inquisitors and their war bands and sort of the strange shenanigans that uh, can ensue when you have all those personalities 
over the course of a novel. It's really cool. Uh, Lavelle, what do you got for our chosen for this episode? You know, a while ago, a couple of shows ago, I talked about, you know, the the, the must-have, which is the tools for efficient gameplay, the cards. When you get your army that you're going to, to get, as soon as the card, to getting the cards. And so a couple of people commented that they noticed that I had begun using uh, sleep card protectors, you know, like people use some magic. The dragon... I use dragon shield sleeves. I'm used to them. I like the quality of them. What I want to talk about is clearly dragon shield sleeves, which I recommend. I recommend the sheep protector. But another thing that I have, and that's a card case. I've discovered the Ultra Pro Satin Tower case. I know that's a mouthful. It's a it's a hard case. All of my cards for a particular army are in this case, and this is why I like this case. This case has all my cards for a particular army. I have, you know, the Imperial Guard, and I have my um, my Custodes cards all sleeved, right? Because, you know, I'm moving these cards around, and they're getting touched and everything, and I like to keep them in good condition. But this – and it keeps them protected. I can put it right in my gaming case, right in my backpack with my codex, and it keeps them protected. doesn't get them bent up. But this particular case, it's, it's about 11 bucks. In the bottom of the case, you can pull the bottom off, and there's enough space in there. I like full-size dice. If you use micro dice, you can use that as well to keep a set of dice in there as well. It's really, really good. Yeah, and so it keeps all the things together right there together. Um, I I just recommend that. It's not expensive. So, you know, you're going to spend 20 bucks on the cards, right? And so, you know, for another – Seven to ten bucks, you get your card case. Another ten bucks, I'm sorry, another ten, seven to ten bucks, you get your sleeve protectors. Another ten, eleven bucks, you get your card case. As soon as you get, I get there, go ahead, put your key, your your cards in the sleeve protector, put them all in there. If you get the dice, I don't really, I haven't seen any of the Games Workshop custom dice that you that I like. But if you get their dice, put them right in there. Put them right in there, lock stock, ready to go. How does it? Yeah. How does it all stay together, Lavelle? Is it like a latch or something? It slips right on. It's still tight. Like my naturally, my custodies are in a gold case. My imperial guards is in a green case. I know if I'm imperial cards, if I'm playing my imperial guard, I pick up my tape measure. I have the the, the, the Nova turn counter. I pick up that case. I'm ready to go. There are some cheaper cases that you can get. You know, any place you be, get your, any place you see Magic the Gathering cards, you can look at that. But this Ultra Pro case that I got, I looked at it. It was not that expensive. It was nice and hard. If you drop it, it's not going to pop open. Your cards aren't going to fly all over the place. If some, if there's some horrible accident on your on the on the um the gaming table somebody spills a soda anything like that your cards are going to be protected your cards are going to be moved around people are going to be looking at your cards everything you don't have to worry about your cards being handling i really recommend it i like that you got me thinking about that too laville now i get to pretend like i haven't played magic before (laughs) (laughs) carla what do you have for us i got good old measuring tape because tim you still have my good old measuring tape. What? The time I lent it to you two weeks before. Uh oh. <laughs> so I lent my like I have this nice little compact Stanley measuring tape that's like the perfect size and weight for my hands, and I lent it to Tim like two oh. weeks ago, right? Yep. Three, uh, yep. <laughs> and uh, since then, I've been using like uh, I guess like another measuring tape that came in my 
my toolkit at home and my tool bag. And it's like way too big and a little awkward. And like you drop it on a table, it's going to really destroy somebody's model, like smash it twice because it's so big kind of a thing. And uh, I just want my measuring tape back, Tim. Just want it back. I like how you <laughs> snuck this in as the chosen of the week. Like, where, yeah. where is my measuring tape? Oh, it's in dun, Tim's dun, house. Dun, <laughs> dun, dun, dun. The court. Point taken. Dun, dun, Point dun, taken. Measuring tape. tape. <laughs> nice. And then, in addition, in addition to that, like you know, like so, the reason why I brought that up is because like there's a another guy at the store like my secondary tape isn't really that bad but i noticed like one of our friends was using like a really big really awkward measuring tape and it like made me nervous just being on the table because like (laughs) you drop that thing it'll like destroy somebody's model right so um i think it's like really it's something like we overlook because it's such a normal thing but like it it, it, it's like the thing you you, it's the tool that you use the most when you're playing 40k and you want to make sure that it's kind of like like fits perfectly in your hand and it's comfortable to use and like i feel like some of the even some of those really small ones you know like the ones that are like three millimeters thick and like yeah the keychain ones yeah yeah Mm -hmm. i don't like those either like i feel like they're too small like you need something like right in the middle that's gonna fit in your hand perfectly it's gonna be weight like have like a little bit of weight to it so you know but not nothing too heavy and then to go along with that uh, a couple weeks ago i finally broke down and bought one of those like laser pointers that draw line of sight line across Mm -hmm. the board that's really awesome too I made the mistake once of I brought one of those very large Stanley or whatever it was, like the really fat measuring tapes. I think I was playing here at my house. And I measured like through my – I think it was the, the Skatari uh, Vanguard, right? And I hit the button to bring the tape back into the dispenser piece. <laughs> and it it ripped through those models with such force that it, like, scattered them all over the table. <laughs> like, I ruined my own unit by retracting the head of the, of the measuring tape. It was so stupid. Awesome. Hey, so stupid. guys, have you seen my yellow measuring tape? I don't have it, Lavelle. I did not take it. Uh, I, I know. I know. But you've seen my yellow measuring tape? Yeah. So this is what I did. Um, I found one that worked for me, right? And I got this. I, I got to give my props to my son, Akil. Akil found one that worked for him, and this is what he did. He got it from Home Depot, and I think he got it for like five ninety nine or some number like that. And because he he had a bunch of Games Workshops one that kept breaking, he found it at Home Depot, and and then one day he came home with a bag, and he had five measuring tapes. And I thought he bought one for everybody, and he said, you touch my Western tape, you die. Uh-huh. What he did was, because we all play different games. He put one in he every bag, didn't he? <laughs> put one in every bag. Yep. And he gave each one. He put his initials on each one. And that's exactly what I did. I have one in my Infinity bag, one in my War Machine bag, and I have, you know, m- multiple measuring tapes. And, you know, because c- Carlo is right. When you have a measuring tape that works for you, that's what you want. Thank you for listening. As always, we do appreciate your ears on our content. We hope you find it enjoyable. Hope you enjoyed episode 12. For Crew Shaken, I've been Tim. I'm LaBelle. I've been Carlo. We'll see you next time.